Oh, good morning, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to be part of your series in the uh, Book of Acts. It's a great privilege uh, to share uh, with you. This morning uh, we look at uh, chapter 6 and 7. I guess you've been dealing with the Book of Acts in your small groups, and uh, we were going to look at the two chapters, and I decided this morning to uh, take, because it's such a long passage, to take... Uh, three important lessons from the life of Stephen. And uh, those three important lessons are the core of Christian commitment is service. Christians are a baffling, confusing contradiction to the world. And sometimes God's will for us is martyrdom. So you should go away encouraged by that third third point uh, this morning. And so we come to this story of the first Christian Martyr, And in him we're going to see the profile of an ordinary Christian person. This, this guy is not an apostle, he's not a church leader, he's an average Christian guy. But it's because of people like him that the church grows. Now, I'm going to spend the first ten minutes talking about the context and you'll see some slides that say context and context continued. The context is really the overview of where these three points come from, setting the scene, if you like, for these three uh, main lessons that we learn from the life of Stephen. By this point of the church, the church had become a huge movement The Jerusalem church is at least 10,000 people strong and all in one city. The entire population of Jerusalem at that time was something like 40,000. From here, we know that it is going to spread around the world. The question is, why is it growing like this? Kenneth Scott LaTourette, a noted history professor at Yale, said, Never in so short a time has any other religious faith or for that matter, any other set of ideas, religious, political or economic, ever achieved so commanding a position in such an important culture without the aid of physical force or social or cultural prestige. Other movements spread by conquest or politics, but not Christianity. So how and why? The answer in part is is partly found in the profile of this man we're going to look at this morning. Stephen has one principle that he lives by, one principle that makes him the kind of guy who keeps people together, that keeps everything going forward. That probably makes him a person that is fun to be around. That principle is that it's not about me. If you've ever known a guy like Stephen, you'll recognise him immediately. In verse 1, we read, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, which means Jews with, with uh, Greek cultural roots, the Greek word hellas refers to the geographic region of Greece, Among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now here we are, we're, we're, it's the context that we're going to bring these three points out of. This is the, the overview. 
Now this is a fairly pretty dangerous problem that they have in the early church because this is an edge to it. There's an edge to it. It's a, it's a racial problem. You're prioritising this group over this one because of cultural ethnicity. There are actually two problems with this complaint. First, they assigned motives. The text says the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews. In other words, they assumed the Hebrews were leaving them out for racial and cultural reasons. And the second thing is that they never brought this to the apostles. The text says a complaint arose which uh, implies there was general murmuring going on in small groups all across Jerusalem that finally surfaced, saying, you know they don't care about us, and so the murmuring went on. This is a significant threat. Nothing is used by Satan more effectively than distrust and resentment within the church. This is Satan's, if you like, third major attack on the church. In chapter 4, he attacked it through a persecuting government. In chapter 5, he attacked it through embezzling hypocrisy of one of its leaders, Ananias. And now in chapter 6, he attacks it through a spirit of grumbling distrust. And this might be the most serious threat of all that endangers churches. Someone said that the spirit of grumbling kills more churches than persecution. Do we realise that when we speak evil of our brothers and sisters and especially when we judge their motives, we are being used by Satan to bring division? There are two rules for life that I've tried to live by and encourage others to also and those two rules are always give others the benefit of the doubt about their motives when you can. And when you have a problem, always go straight to the source. Do you know how much disharmony we could avoid if we operated that way? Somehow, so how did the church leadership react? Did they uh, react defensively and try to justify themselves? No. They called the people together and they said, so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables, brothers and sisters. Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of spirit and wisdom and we will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. Now don't hear that as this is beneath us to wait on tables. The fact that they had to call on a team to do it when the load of widows got larger uh, implies that the apostles were already doing it for the Jewish widows. The apostles thought of themselves as servants. They were followers of a man who had washed their feet. So for the first six chapters, they had been waiting on tables, serving. But now they realise that the load is too heavy and, and would, uh, uh, that would consume their time. And the greatest act of service they could provide the church was teaching the word accurately, seeking God in prayer on behalf of the church and training other people to do the same. They are not graduating out of service, just 
focusing on a different kind of service. But that means someone has to do this part of church ministry. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and a whole bunch of other guys whose names are hard to pronounce. But by the way, they are almost uh, all Greek names, which means they included the Hellenists in the leadership. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of the God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now here's a question. Why the specific mention of priests? They weren't only the group that got saved. I have a a speculation. In the Old Testament, priests were in charge of taking care of the poor. Here you have a whole group of people acting like priests, doing what priests did. Priests had been antagonistic towards Jesus. They had helped lead him to his crucifixion. But their hearts are now changed. How? Through apologetic reasoning? Through debate? No. Through the church's service towards the poor and power evangelism. Verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Evidently he's leading in a lot of the conversions. Well, all of these conversions cause an uproar. And so Stephen gets called before the other church leaders, other priests, to answer for it. And he preaches a sermon. And that sermon is found in Acts chapter 7, the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And in that sermon, he makes two major points. He says, Israel, you have always resisted the prophets that God sent to you, and your law can't save you because you've never been able to keep it. And it can't give you a new heart, which you really need. And then he ends it with a rousing word, of encouragement. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. That's an encouraging word as he completes. You know, you want the truth, you can't handle the truth. That's what he's saying. Verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Here again we have this theme of priests emerge. You see, in Israel only priests could enter the place of God's glory and only once a year through a special ceremony. Now Stephen says, I am seeing heaven opened in front of me. He's not a priest He's not even an apostle. The church has become a nation of priests. They take care of the poor and commune directly 
in the presence of God. Verse 57, at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now the first lesson that we uh, that we read that we learn from Stephen's life is that the core of Christian commitment is service. Stephen is introduced to us as a servant. His job was not glorious. He waited on tables for widows. He obviously was a capable leader a gifted theologian and a good preacher, but he didn't say, well, I'm going to need something a little more in line with my gifts. No, he said, it's not about me, and if this is how I can serve the body of Christ, I'll gladly do it. And that surface, though seemingly insignificant, had a huge effect on the church. Not only did he help preserve church unity, His service led to the conversion of some of the chief antagonists in the community, the religious priests, and would end up leading to the conversion of the church's chief prosecutor, Saul himself. Francis Safer said, The love of the church is the church's most effective apologetic. It is the belonging within a community. Now I observe one thing about the desires of your community here at Monty to be a place characterised by service. I've observed acts of kindness and humble service in the best interest of the whole community. I've been there for each other through times of crisis, whether it's health issues or, or family trauma, of sharing resources in time of need and in commitment to build each other up to be more like Jesus through the study of God's word in small groups. Now when new people enter this sort of environment, they feel they matter and want to be part of what God is doing. A study by the research group Barna indicated that 70% of new people decide whether or not they'll come back to a church within the first seven minutes of arriving. Now, that's not to put any pressure on the welcoming team, but uh, that's, uh, that's, what they, that's what they found. Now, this love is meant to overflow into the streets, just like it did here in Acts chapter 6. The Roman emperor Julian, one of the fiercest prosecutors of the early Christians, whom the early church affectionately referred to as Julian the Apostate, admitted in disgust... These infernal Galileans feed our poor in addition to their own. It's encouraging to see how Monty's service flows into the streets, both locally and globally, through playgroup, through kids' club, through kids' hope. You know, schools are crying out for more mentors And for some of you to be involved in that Kids Hope program is something that is transforming lives. Alpha, the craft group that support the Samaritan's Purse and the support of AMT. These are ways in which your love is spreading beyond your own community and into the streets locally and globally. 
Now, we all have the opportunity and should be involved in service. When we belong to a community of faith like Montmorency Community Church, well, some of you may say, well, how do you know where to serve? Some might serve through their skill, some through their passion, others through a great need that you recognise. Let me comment on that last one. Sometimes you serve simply because there is a need. I'm not sure waiting on tables for widows was a passion or skill of Stephen. He did it because it needed to be done. I can assure you that when Jesus washed the feet of his friends, he didn't do it because he had a unique skill in foot washing or a special passion for it. You can imagine him saying, I never feel so alive as when I'm washing feet. (laughs) But he did it because he wanted to give an example of humble service. You and I need to make room in our lives, particularly here in the church, to do things we don't necessarily thrill to do, but respond to a need. And that applies to all of us, whether our service is up front, on the platform, or behind the scenes. What do we, what do, what we do is supposed to be an act of service, not for self-exaltation. We need to pray for each other on these matters because we're all vulnerable to turn that around. And so the first point we see is that the core of Christian commitment is service. The second lesson that we learn from Stephen's life is that Christians are a baffling, confusing contradiction to the world. Stephen's life is a contradiction to everyone. He is so kind and gracious and servant life that he wins the hearts of antagonistic priests. Yet his rebuke is so stinging it makes another group of religious leaders want to murder him. Stephen looks at people and says, you are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart. But then, as they are stoning him, he says, God, don't charge them with his sin. How do you get your head around that? He says they don't know what they're doing. Stephen is speaking with grace and truth. And brothers and sisters, that's the Christian formula. And the world most hates you when you speak with both. Truth without grace is fundamentalism and easy to write off. Grace without truth is sentimentality with no power. If you speak with grace and truth, the world will hate you no matter how much grace you have. Truth and grace together. If we're looking for the world's affirmation as followers of Jesus, you're not going to get it. They are going to call you arrogant and hateful and bigoted. And we should always examine our hearts to see if those things are true. But you're also going to love them and return good for evil and serve them and refuse to be bitter at them and ask God for their forgiveness. And some of them, like Saul, will see the sweetest of your testimony and how you respond to persecution and will be converted. But the rest will keep throwing stones. You know, it's hard to get my head around, 
you know, this Saul as we come to him in just a few moments. I don't know whether you listen to Andrew Bolt or you read these articles, but uh, some of you might agree, and we all agree with some things, but other things we find perhaps not so edible. During the week, he had an article called Mirror uh, Morality When Evil is Good. And it was a, an excellent piece, if you don't mind me saying. And, uh, and he gives all the backgrounds of this particular statement that he makes. And then he says, it's that mirror morality and, to, and so tolerance means condoning intolerance. Gender equality means promoting gender inequality. And anti-racism means insisting on racism. Now, he gave all examples to that. Everything has been flipped so that we see, say, human rights campaigners, such as Julian Burnside, actually demanding we keep tough laws against free speech being used to shut down debates on racial identity. Behold the morality of our time, uh, behold the morality of our times, narcissists posing as good, working for evil. And, And this is the this is the complexity of the world in which we live. And some people get sucked in by, 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 by the way in which the media promote these things and individuals do. And so uh, we live in, in a very difficult time. Christians are a baffling, confusing contradiction to the world. But we must, as followers of Jesus, speak both with grace and with truth. The third is the most encouraging for us this morning before we go. Sometimes God's will is for us, uh, God's will for us is martyrdom. Stephen did everything right and he ended up dead. What happened? Why didn't God bless him and reward him uh, and grow his ministry and multiply uh, his days? I don't know. But it says this, they laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now I get chills just thinking about this. I mean, I don't want to over-exaggerate it, but we get shocked at what ISIS is doing, chopping off heads and all sorts of things. But Paul was the then ISIS persecutor of the church. He was the one that was chopping off heads and putting people in prison. You know, and so there's this extreme, radical uh, person who's, who's determined to, to see the church end. Saul was watching. And as every stone smashed into Stephen's face, as his body was mangled into a bloody heap, Saul heard Stephen please with God to forgive his persecutors and he saw the glory of God reflected in Stephen's face and something happened in Saul's heart. He never got over it. It was the preparation for that blinding light. Stephen's blood going into the ground was the seed of the Apostle Paul's faith. Stephen's most effective contribution to the kingdom of God came through his martyrdom. Paul was not converted by seeing Stephen delivered. He was converted by seeing Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, testifying to Jesus' glory in the midst of pain. Do you realise that the sermons you preach through your pain are louder than the ones that you preach through your blessings? Because life is tough. And as we, and it's how we handle those tough times that is a great testimony to the power of God. Stephen, it's not about me. 
It's not about me living or prospering. My life is about one thing, point, it's one thing, and that is pointing people to Jesus. From start to finish, Stephen's life screams that it's not about me. It's not about my self-actualization or getting the respect I deserve. It's not about serving or waiting tables, if that's the need. It's not about me obtaining blessings and walking in prosperity, but about directing people's attention towards Jesus. Sometimes when going through difficult times, it's, it's good to stop and ask, what's it all about? How is God glorified in this scene? Where did Stephen get this kind of courage and selflessness? When he looked up into heaven, and what did he see? He saw Jesus stretching out nail-pierced hands to receive him. Jesus, the Lord of the universe, who had given up his life for Stephen. He had washed the feet of sinners and expected them to do the same. And then Stephen prayed, Father, forgive them. Where have we heard that? Stephen is becoming to others what Jesus had been to him. Brothers and sisters, those who believe the gospel and live the gospel become like the gospel. Note he includes an odd little detail in his vision. He said, I see Jesus standing. Every other place in the New Testament that talks about Jesus at the throne of God talks about him sitting, but here he's standing. And I believe he's standing in affirmation. All the religious leaders are calling Stephen a heretic, but Jesus, the prince of theology, stands up on God's throne and says, he's mine. They call him a heretic and a fool, but Father, I say he is mine. Earth is condemning him, but heaven was commending him. Earth was rejecting him, but heaven was receiving him. And though it looked like this fellow was in the hands of the devil, he was actually in the hands of God who was overruling all of this for good. Jesus was in charge of it all. Stephen didn't know it, but watching him die was the one who would become the greatest evangelist the world had ever known. And God was using his death to bring the, to prepare this young man to bring him to faith. Those of us who are suffering or are in places of difficulty today, we need to obey. We need to see Jesus in the same place to see he is in control. Just like he used and overturned the evil plans of Joseph's brothers for good, just like he took Stephen's martyrdom and used it to produce the greatest missionary, Paul, he's using your suffering and my suffering, my difficult times, for the same thing. You need to see him standing in love and victory at the right hand of God. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace, one with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood and my life is hid with Christ on high with Christ my saviour and my God. The degree to which you understand Jesus' love and victory is the degree to which you'll be able to endure suffering well. One more thing. The name Stephen means crown in Greek. In Greece, crowns were given to those who overcame. 
don't miss this. Stephen overcame the world not by experiencing what we would typically call blessing, but by dying faithful to Jesus with his eyes fixed on the risen Christ. God used his death for more than he'd ever dreamed. The Lord was not finished. Through Stephen's death, the sect of Judaism was forced to flee Jerusalem. The Christians were scattered and their faith with them. They were to be part of the worldwide movement. They would have never left Jerusalem without the persecution and punishment inflicted on them. The death of Stephen ignited the fire of the pent-up hatred for the followers of Jesus. It exploded into fury. They had to leave. And their deployment in dispersion throughout the cities of the Mediterranean basin planted the seed which would germinate until it would be ready to sprout into indigenous churches. You and I, if we want to overcome the world, we need to serve. Confess that it's not about you and me and submit to obedience whatever the cost. Some of you are being called upon by God right now to glorify him in your hour of trial. For some of you, it's physical or emotional affliction that we must pray, Jesus, I see you standing and I trust you. Help me to give your glory to whatever happens. Some of you have been put into situations where it is costly to obey. You've got to say, Jesus is worth it. God wins the world through the people who say, it's not about me and Jesus is worth it. And they pick up the towel and serve whatever the cost. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15 we read, And he died for all, that those who live should no, live, no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have recorded for us this amazing story of Stephen. Help us to learn the lessons well from Stephen's experience of serving, from his experience of dying. Father, help us to learn these lessons well, to understand that we are a contradiction to the world around us. Help us, Lord, to speak with grace and with truth, to represent you in a way that brings honour. We carry your name. And as we carry your name out into the community, may you be honoured and glorified by our faithfulness and by our obedience as we encourage each other to be the people that you would have us to be so that others will see the love of Jesus in us and in our community and magnetically draw people to the cross of Jesus where they will find life. Thank you, Lord. We give ourselves to you for this purpose. In Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen.